Catholic predestination, the omnipotence and innocence of divine love. The early medieval doctrine of predestination was formulated initially by disciples of Augustine, such as Leo the Great and Prosper of Aquitaine, and given doctrinal articulation by the Second Council of Orange in the fifth century and the councils or synods of Quiercy and Valencia in the ninth. By the early 13th century, the Western Catholic Church had clarified a definitive twofold claim regarding the mystery of predestination. First, those who attain to salvation do so only because of the primacy of God's grace and assistance given to them from all eternity in order to lead them up the pathway toward salvation. The predestination of the elect depends upon the eternal creative power and goodness of God who always takes the first initiative. Second, those who are reprobated and suffer eternal damnation do so only because they have culpably rejected the grace of God that was offered to them antecedently. Their reprobation is not caused primarily by God and in no way impugns the goodness of Christ or his moral innocence. Christ died for all human beings. Christ died so that all human beings might be offered the possibility of salvation. All who are saved have God alone to thank for taking the initiative to save them and sustain them in a state of grace so that they might persevere. All who are damned have themselves alone to blame for the rejection of grace. In the words of Augustine, God never abandons us unless we first abandon him. Today, however, this classical view of the doctrine has been largely lost from view due to the emergence in the modern period of two rival conceptions of the Augustinian patrimony, both of which obscure the traditional doctrine and which in some ways are mere images of one another, though opposed in particular aspects. The first of these is that of John Calvin, a subtle thinker whose views should not be caricatured, who posited a number of tenets that were to have great effect in modern debates both among Calvin's defenders and critics. Here we may list briefly a number of his core ideas. The thesis that grace is irresistible and infallibly converts the hearts of those to whom it is given. The, the thesis that God gives this grace only to a part of the human race, the elect or predestined. The thesis that there is no distinction to be made between the divine will and the divine permissions of evil, so that all that happens in history is in some way the transparent expression of divine volition, including the moral evil of human beings that may prepare them for just reprobation on the part of God. The thesis of the radical depravity of the human person who is incapable of choosing what is morally good from a right motive, even in the natural order, without a prior initiative of divine grace acting upon the subject. The thesis that only those are saved who have explicit faith in the gospel and not any kind of implicit faith by way of non-specifically Christian tenets of belief, or you might say implicitly Christian tenets of belief, so that only visible members of the church may be saved. And of course, this is the church as, def as defined and defended by the institutes of the Christian religion. To this, we can add the following theses, which may well be in Calvin, but are disputed and that, may, and that were promulgated by only some of his disciples. The notion that Christ died only for the elect, so-called selective atonement theory, and the notion that God from all eternity wills that many be reprobate independently of or prior to their foreseen demerits, so-called double predestination. A contrary interpretation of the Augustinian heritage is offered by Karl Barth and has echoes in various modern Catholic thinkers. Following a thesis of the 20th century, French, of, the, of the, French, the 20th century French Reformed theologian, Pierre Maury, 
Bart inverted certain features of the Calvinist paradigm while maintaining others. God is the primary author of salvation by grace alone, and grace that is given to the elect works by way of infallible efficacy. It is not ultimately resistible. From all eternity, God has willed that the elect be saved and is able to effectuate this determination of man for salvation through all the mediations of history. Thus far, we are with Calvin. However, in differentiation from traditional Reformed doctrine, Bart holds that all human beings have been elected to eternal life in Christ, who has died for all human beings. Meanwhile, according to Bart, Christ alone has experienced the dereliction of the passion and descent into hell in substitutionary atonement for all of humanity, and so Christ alone is reprobate. He was forsaken so that we might be saved. Consequently, God invites all human beings to salvation in Christ, and due to the efficacy of his grace, we might rightfully dare to hope that all will be saved. God has a kind of canonic or self-emptying respect for the freedom of his creature in allowing, in allowing those creatures to do evil, but God is also able in his transcendent freedom to incorporate outcomes from our all-too-human works of evil into his plan of redemption, not only making himself the subject and victim of this evil and the passion, but also making use of his own human death and resurrection in such a way as to exalt humanity forever into life with God in Christ. Bart says enigmatically and interestingly that it was Judas who was the apostle who was most important in effectuating our salvation because it was he who was moved by God to turn Christ over to be reprobate for our sake. Here, Augustinianism is placed at the service of an eschatological universalism that seeks to vindicate the goodness and innocence of God in the face of humanity's history of suffering and moral evil. We find in the eschatology of Bart an inversion of the problem brought on by Calvin specifically. Neither theology seems to depict adequately a world in which God's sovereign love for the creature is echoed by analogy in the creature's real capacity to love God freely and also to refuse grace freely and turn away from the mystery of Christ. For both Calvin and Bart, in contrast to the Council of Trent, grace is deemed irresistible in fairly unambiguous terms. With Calvin, it is given only to some, while with Bart, it is ultimately accorded to all. This leads critics of the Calvinist paradigm to the concern that the souls of the reprobate never truly had the possibility of receiving God's grace. This leads critics of the Bardian paradigm to the concern that the elect really never had the possibility of refusal of the mystery. In either case, the triumph of the divine will seems to require an eventual vanquishing or eclipsing of the human will, no matter how sublimely this resolution is portrayed. The inverted Calvinism of Bart, while reaching a much more benign outcome than, that, than the theology of double predestination, seems to veer toward a form of Gnostic dualism in which our historical decisions ultimately have no capacity to affect eternity as real decisions we make in time of love or lovelessness have no ultimate effect upon the state we inhabit before God for all eternity. Hans Urs von Balthasar famously stated that love alone is worthy of belief. We might qualify the depiction of divine love is more of a necessary condition for theology than a sufficient condition. After all, wisdom, too, is worthy of belief, and so is truth. Perhaps then we might restate his claim by saying that what is worthy of belief must always shine forth with the, with the resplendent splendor of divine love. 
In the medieval Augustinian paradigm of the doctrine of predestination, divine love predominates, both in God's actions with regard to the predestined, and in a real sense also with regard to the reprobate, both in God's expressions of internal omnipotence and his expressions of divine goodness and immaculate purity or innocence. The key to this balance is found in the twin affirmations of the universal offer of the possibility of salvation, which is stimulated by God's love for all in Christ, who died for all, arms extended on the cross, open to the world, and that of the real possibility of human refusal, which follows from God's loving respect for the creaturely freedom to love or to turn away from love. The analogy of divine and human love is present both in the assimilation of the human will to the life of God by the internal working of grace and in the mystery of God's respect for the freedom of human refusal. God in his omnipotence gives grace to all and leads some inexorably to eternal life. God in his goodness and innocence allows human beings to resist his grace, permitting some to persist in their willful refusal of the mystery of Christ. In what follows then, I would like to posit six principles, briefly, that I take to be normative for any sufficiently balanced Catholic account of predestination. In doing so, I will have recourse to the thought of Thomas Aquinas. This Thomistic account is able to hold these features in healthy tension in such a way as to present us with a mystery, one that is both luminous and obscure, intelligible and numinous. The balance and depth of this account preserves the truths of the New Testament and of the Augustinian heritage of Western theology in consonance with the sound principles of realistic metaphysics and of ordinary human experience and the best practices of the Catholic spiritual life. The first principle, all that is morally good in the human person comes from the creative activity and prov providential assistance of God, including the free actions of persons. The book of Genesis, as read in the Catholic tradition, teaches that God is the author and giver of all that exists, not only in its historical origins by way of a creation in time, but also in its actual existence. This means that all that is exists only insofar as it is being given existence actually by God. And all that is, is ontologically good in some way by virtue of its being, just as goodness is in some sense coexistence with coexist coextensive with existence. <clears throat> Among the things that exist, we must include the reality of human freedom, which is a property of the human soul and is itself grounded in the faculty of the will. The will is the appetite of human reason. Knowledge gives rise to love, and love gives rise to deliberate free actions. Reason and freedom are embedded ineluctably in the human spiritual soul as constitutive of our human identity specifying ontologically what kind of reality we are. Since we are given being by God in each instant to be this kind of being, a rational animal, so too we are given by God in each moment to be a free human being who is substantially autonomous, a self-mover, a decision-maker, who makes free decisions by knowledge and by love. We can conclude from this first principle two things. First, if we begin from realistic metaphysical premises, there is no rivalry possible or envisageable between God as the first cause of our existence who gives us to be and human free agents as secondary causes who are truly free in and of themselves. Created causes are causes in and of themselves, even as they are causes only ever from and because of God. The condition of possibility for there to be a human free agent is the creator who gives each human agent to its being and sustains it in existence 
precisely as a free, rational creature in each moment. And secondly, all that we choose that is authentically moral, morally good is itself a gift of God. This is the case even in the order of created nature, prescinding from the consideration of the gift of grace and the mystery of salvation. God gives us the kind of nature that can make morally praiseworthy actions, and so he is himself the primary author of all that is morally good in us, just insofar as these morally good actions exist. This does not mean there's no such thing as a genuinely morally praiseworthy or blameworthy act. On the contrary, human actions can be authentically free and morally good due primarily to the fact that God causes them to be. This metaphysical principle, when rightly understood, does not undermine human freedom, but establishes it as real. The transcendent exemplar of human spiritual freedom is the divine freedom of God. And it is only because there exists a primary cause of spiritual freedom himself free that our created human freedom can come into existence as a sheer gift. What this claim does imply, however, is that all that is genuinely praiseworthy in a human being's moral action is always also more fundamentally an ontological gift from God. We depend always upon the Creator for all the moral good that exists within us. Second principle, all that the human person does that is morally evil stems from a truly free, morally culpable, morally culpable and naturally defective initiative of the creature. The second principle that is deeply interrelated to the first has to do with the origins of moral evil. Here we must reclaim a central tenet of Augustinian thought that was formulated in the face of Manichaeanism. Evil is the privation of the good, and consequently, evil is also a kind of privation of being. The morally evil act is an act that is deprived of its right rectitude and therefore of the fullness of being and goodness. Here Aquinas offers us a set of distinct ideas that coexist in some tension. First, it is clear from Aquinas' treatment of the morally free act in De Malo 6, question 6, that he takes it to be a given that a morally free agent who does evil has the power to do otherwise and does not act by necessity. Otherwise, he says, the creature would not be culpable, but in fact, blameless. He goes so far as to call the opinion of the necessity of the evil act a heresy. Consequently, the morally evil agent cannot be excused based on the claim that God simply did not give him the power, ability, and fundamental inclination to do the good. On the contrary, it is only because he has all of these, the power, the ability, and the inclination, that his action is truly morally disoriented and blameworthy. Were this not the case, or were God to withhold the assistance sufficient to the creature to do what is right, the creature would not be culpable, says Aquinas. Furthermore, Aquinas notes that God causes the act to be, that is morally evil. And yet God is not responsible for the defect of the act as such. He does not will its moral defect either directly or indirectly. Of course, this point may seem in strange tension with the first principle just mentioned, that God is the creator who causes to be each good act we do, that God is the creator, causes to be each good act that we do in such a way that we are truly free only in ontological dependence upon the Creator, even if we presuppose that that kind of account of divine causality is truly compatible with genuine human freedom, which we should, is it still compatible with divine innocence? Does such an idea not entail that in the case of a morally evil act that God deprives the human soul of some assistance necessary so that it might avoid evil and do the good? Aquinas notes that this is not the case. 
And here we come to the non-parallelism of parallelism of good and evil actions. In the ascendant order of action oriented toward the good, the prior initiative of God is always present as the transcendent primary origin of all the good we do. What do you have that you have not received? In the case of evil actions, however, Aquinas provides a subtle analysis that is of major significance for the history of theology. An, even, an evil action exists itself, itself exists, and depends upon God for its very being. Furthermore, as with the good actions we do, evil actions depend upon the transcendent internal motion of God who moves the human soul from ontological potentiality to act or from the capacity to do the act to the real engagement in the act. Nevertheless, the act is only evil because of a prior intention on the part of the created agent who chooses to act without due consideration of the rule of moral law and hence refuses to avert to the genuine order of ethical truthfulness. There's falsehood in his action. Here Aquinas distinguishes a negation in the act from a privation that results. He says there's both a negation and a privation. The negation or non-being of the morally evil action is found in the non-reference to the rule in the intellect or the sheer absence of regard for the moral truth. The privation is present subsequently to the negation and results from it. A free action that is not grounded in the truth is deprived of rectitude with regard to the moral truth and is therefore ontologically disordered by privation. This falling away from the plenitude of being is the evil in us Augustine noted so well. We diminish ourselves by evil and become less than we were intended to be because we do not refer our actions to the moral truth about ourselves but walk in the darkness of the lie, one that diminishes us in our very being. Why, though, do we not refer ourselves to the truth prior to the commission of a morally deformed action? Here, St. Thomas pushes his analysis back to the first principle and cause of moral evil, the metaphysical mystery of the failure of the will to love the authentic good. Love sometimes fails. Following Augustine, Aquinas notes that the created will is inherently ontologically imperfect. It is created from nothing. Therefore, unlike the divine will that is perfect, the human, will can, the human will can fail to love and do the good. What is mysterious is that the human being can love what is less noble and perfect in preference to what is more noble and perfect, in such a way as to diminish its own nobility and happiness. The disorder in the action originates not from a privation of the gift of being on the part of the Creator, but from a culpable defect in the love of the, of the creature. Creaturely evil originates from the mystery of freely accepted, disordered human love, the failures and agonies of the human heart that remain in some way obscure. Third principle, the mystery of salvation by grace stems primarily from the initiative of God, whose gifts of grace precede all works of cooperation on the part of the free human creature. The third principle can be articulated somewhat succinctly and yet is the central claim of the Augustinian teaching on grace. <clears throat> we have said above that all that is ontologically good in the human creature originates from God the Creator, even in the order of nature alone, prescinding from the order of grace. How much more is this the case in the domain of the supernatural? Where grace is that infused gift of divine life by which human beings are healed of the wounds of sin and elevated into a participation in the life of God. Based on a careful reading of the New Testament, medieval Augustinian theologians made non-arbitrary distinctions 
regarding the life of grace in us as various effects brought about by the initiative of God. Provenient operative graces are those that precede our conversion and stir up in us an initial interest in and openness to the mystery of Christ. The grace of justification consists in what Aquinas calls the infused habits of faith, hope, and charity. These theological virtues are cooperative graces that enable us to move ourselves in conformity with the life of grace in us. They allow us to actively fix our hearts and minds on God in stable ways through regular, habitual actions that orient us incessantly toward union with God. Sanctifying grace in turn facilitates the process of growth, merit, and development in the life of the theological virtues, accompanied by the infused moral virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit acting in the soul. In sanctification, the soul is given the grace to cooperate actively with the life of God present in it. The Holy Spirit can live or indwell within the soul in an enduring way as a welcomed guest and active source of spiritual inspiration and direction. The grace of perseverance is that by which the soul perdures in the pathway of penance and sanctification even unto death. Finally, beatification results from God's gift of the Lumen Gloriae, the light of glory, by which the human soul is granted to see the eternal essence of God by immediate intellectual intuition to behold the mystery of the Holy Trinity face to face. The aim of the doctrine of predestination in this domain is to signal that in all of these graces, provenient awakening, justification, sanctification, perseverance, glorification, it is always God who takes the primary initiative in the order of the gift. What do you have that you have not received? It follows from this way of thinking about the mystery of salvation that the gifts of grace, including those of final perseverance and entrance into eternal life, are never given in view of foreseen merits on the part of the creature, as if the creature were in any way to earn by his own natural powers and efforts either the initial offer of grace or the gift of justification or the process of sanctification, except insofar as it stems organically from the justification and its life in the soul, or the gift of final perseverance and beatification in eternal life, which Aquinas reserves following Augustine to being a special gift. All of this is always only God's gratuitous gift, even when the soul is also given the grace to cooperate meritoriously with the sanctifying work of God in it. The creature can only cooperate freely with the gifts of God because God himself gives the creature infused habitual graces that render possible this stable cooperation. The fourth principle. God offers the possibility of salvation to all human persons, the mystery of perdition, originates from the free, defective resistance to or refusal of the mystery of grace. The Catholic Church traditionally claims that God offers the possibility of salvation by grace to all. This idea is contained in Scripture overtly in the apostolic teaching of 1 Timothy 2, God wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and implicitly in the unambiguous affirmations that Christ offered his life on behalf of all human beings, of which there are several in the New Testament. Aquinas is quite clear in multiple texts that the offer of salvation is made to all. It was a teaching of Leo the Great, although there is ambiguity as to whether Augustine entertains the idea. There were many later Augustinians who came to hold it. So likewise, in the 17th century, the Church rejected the theory of limited atonement found in Jansenius's Augustinus. And in the 20th century, taught in Gaudium et Spes that God offers the possibility of 
offers to all the possibility of being configured in some way to the Paschal mystery of Christ so as to be saved by his unique grace. At the same time, the church has underscored just as incessantly that the grace of God can be resisted or refused, and in fact that it is given in more perfect intensity and in more privileged dispensations to some, such as the baptized, than to others. This teaching that the grace of God can be refused does have clear biblical warrant, even though Augustine does not have any unambiguous sympathy for the idea of resistance to grace, it is found in Prosper of Aquitaine, Leo the Great, the Second Council of Orange, and the subsequent Augustinian tradition. Aquinas speaks clearly of the capacity of the soul to place an obstacle to the gift of grace and of the, couple, the culpable direct resistance to the inward effects of grace. The real possibility of refusal of grace was affirmed doctrinally by the Council of Trent multiple times in the condemnations of Jansenism and repeatedly in the modern teaching of the church. Many Thomists hold to the notion that grace is given by God in an intrinsically effective manner, meaning that whatever grace God gives, sorry, that whatever grace God wishes to us to receive will be received effectively. How then can anyone ever resist or refuse the workings of grace if one follows such Thomist lines of thinking? The resistance is based on what the free human creature does once he or she has received the gift of grace. If a person places an obstacle to the work of grace in himself, the organic effect of that grace can be impeded as the stem of a tree is maimed or destroyed before it can blossom with fruits. Grace can be given, for example, that is sufficient to move a subject to contrition of sins and to active repentance, such as the desire to go to confession, for example. But this grace, which works in the form of a power and inclination given to the soul by the Holy Spirit, can be freely undermined or refused out of a wrongly ordered love of the kind we have considered above. In the confrontation with the gifts and illuminations of grace, the soul can choose what is less noble or prefer what is not supernatural to what is in such a way as to snuff out the work of grace in itself, if God so permits. According to the theory I am presenting, two extremes are to be avoided. One is the notion that God simply does not offer to human beings the grace that is sufficient to make their salvation really possible and only makes this offer to some. Such a view seemingly obscures the goodness of Christ and the real universality of the mystery of the cross. The other extreme would claim that God offers to all equal graces sufficient for their salvation and then reacts or responds to the goodwill each person shows in the use of this initial gift of grace. This latter theory, originating from Luis Molina, suggests that the soul can act supernaturally in quasi-independence from the ontologically prior initiative and sustaining gift of God in the order of grace. It runs the risk of making the soul the primary author or initiator of its own salvation by a kind of tone of Pelagianism. The middle way is to affirm that God offers grace truly sufficient for, the salvation, uh, for salvation to all, such that all have a real possibility of attaining to salvation, but at the same time there is a mystery of God's just respect for some who refuse the gift of grace, and of God's predilection of mercy for others who he converts to himself. God effectively offers grace to some human creatures while allowing them to turn away from him culpably. God tolerates this out of a mysterious respect for the freedom to love or not love in his creature, one which is just and even in a certain sense merciful, since God continues to sustain in being even those who refuse his mystery. 
In other cases, God offers grace to creatures and then pursues them by a kind of persistence of divine mercy. In this latter case, God acts to convert a soul to himself ineluctably and infallibly, so that even if the soul sins gravely, it repents after it sins and learns little by little to cooperate with the grace of Christ in stable and enduring ways. If God truly offers the possibility of salvation to all, why does God allow souls to turn away from him freely in some cases, while drawing souls to, him, to himself effectively in other cases? Here we confront the Augustinian principle of predilection in the order of salvation. Each is given the invitation to love God. All receive grace such that none can say he or she is inculpable. But if some are justified and persevere in grace, we cannot say that, that we have, if some persevere in grace, they cannot say that they have earned more favor than others due to their natural merits. If we are saved, it is due to the gift of God working in us. If we are lost, it is due to our own fatal initiative of freely forsaking the prior offer of God. Fifth principle, God foreknows all who will be saved from all eternity, and his divine will for their salvation is the effective cause of their predestination to divine glory. The fifth principle is that which is most characteristic of the Augustinian theory of predestination. God foreknows all who will be saved from all eternity, and his divine will for their salvation is the transcendent primary cause of their salvation. We can state this principle positively by reconsidering the first and third of the principles mentioned above. God is the primary author of all the good in us, and all that has being within us is itself a gift of God. God is also the primary initiator of the gifts of grace we receive from conversion and justification to sanctification, perseverance, and beatification. If we add to this the notion that God is eternal and that God possesses within himself a plenary knowledge from all eternity of all that he creates and sustains in being, then we must conclude that God has eternal knowledge of all the positive gifts of grace that have, that have ever or will ever be conveyed to creatures in the order of time. Sixth principle, God is eternally innocent of moral evil. Reprobation occurs in light of foreseen demerits. God offers the real possibility of salvation by grace to all human persons in some fashion and in some juncture in their personal history. At the same time, however, we must also underscore a significant biblical truth. God has an eternal knowledge as God of all past, present, and future actions of all moral evil on the part of creatures. God is not surprised by evil actions, nor does he learn anything from them. Rather, as the author of all that exists, he knows all that is and that has being through and through, including the voluntary deficits of his creatures whom he sustains in existence and to whom he continues to give being even when they sin. God does not will that such evil transpires. Rather, the foreknowledge is permissive. God wills from all eternity to offer the grace of salvation to his creatures, but he also permits or allows or tolerates, you might say, from all eternity that some of his creatures might freely turn away from his offer of grace. The permission of God in this case is not the origin of the defect of the human action, even due to a supposed absence of a truly effective grace offered to the soul. Rather, the defect stems from the creature's free decision to turn away from the offer of a grace already given, from the mystery of the creature's failure to love the authentic good. As Domingo Bañez underscores in his reading of Aquinas on Reprobation, 
The creature that is reprobated by God is reprobated only because the creature first turned away from God, freely and definitively. However, the creature had the capacity to choose the good and should have done so. It was not denied assistance from God such that it could not have done otherwise. How do we conclude this study? The six principles that I have enunciated above should be held in tension with one another in a non-reductive way, such that none of them is used to exclude the reality of the others. We might think of them by comparison with a ring, like a ring around one's finger, in which the principles form six nodes that bind the ring together, but that also remain distinct and in some way held firmly apart they work together insofar as they each cast a positive cataphatic light on the mystery of God's predestination of the saints. They remain distinct, however, insofar as they each, they each are irreducibly unique points of intelligibility concerning the mystery. The tension between them creates, takes on an apophatic character. Here we can consider the irreplaceable role of apophaticism by stating in succinct fashion that the six, the six principles enunciated above each, what each of them excludes negatively. First, if God gives us all the positive being and goodness that is present within us, then no account of creaturely freedom should be given that allows creatures to positively enrich or contribute to the, very de to the development of the very being of God, as if God were to change or develop ontologically in a, in a divine history with creatures in, vir in virtue of the choices that creatures might make. Everything is a gift. Everything is received. Second, if the human creature is truly capable of the misuse of, free, of human free will, then we must exclude the thesis that God is the first cause of moral evil, either by willing it directly or by failing to come to the aid of the creature with sufficient recourse of assistance. Third, if God is the author of all grace, that we receive, and we can in no way merit grace by our own natural efforts, then all we receive in the order of grace is first and foremost an unmerited gift of God. We cannot earn or gain anything from God by our natural capacities in the way that we use grace as previously given. Fourth, if God truly offers grace to all human beings, but also allows human beings to resist and eventually at times to refuse his grace definitively, then God is not the author or cause of the human abandonment of God. Your salvation comes from you, O Israel. Your destruction comes from yourself. Sorry. <laughs> your salvation comes from me, O Israel. Your, your destruction comes from yourself. Aquinas quotes that phrase all the time from the Old Testament. First, fifth, if God is the first principle of all grace we receive from all eternity and predestines us to himself by election, then all who are saved have no one to praise for the gift of grace other than God who has chosen them in Jesus Christ. As regards our predestination, all is grace, underscored so profoundly in the first chapter of Ephesians. But lastly, if there are those who refuse the offer of grace from God and persist in this refusal, this is due to the decision of the creature that God respects from all eternity and is in no way a sign that impugns the infinite innocence and goodness of God. I have argued at the beginning of this essay that the classical doctrine of predestination in the Catholic tradition has been largely eclipsed in modernity by the tendency to treat the doctrine as gravitating toward one of two extremes, either one represented by the Calvinist emphasis on the exclusionary offer of, of salvation, 
or the Bardian theory of universalism. What neither of these traditions fail to uh, account for significant, uh, significantly enough is the reality of personal freedom in the human being who is capable of turning away from the mystery of God freely in definitive fashion despite the effective offer of grace that is made in truth initially. Behind this is an eclipse of a feature of divine love, the capacity of God to redeem human freedom transcendently and therefore intrinsically from within as he who is most intimate to the creature without any rivalry to the creature's own actions but also in such a way as to respect the capacity of freedom for the voluntary embrace of the love of God. Consequently, each of these modern quasi-Augustinian substitutes suffers from a deficit in its capacity to depict realistically enough the manner in which God's love for creatures is manifest both in the drama of salvation and the admission of the possibility of eternal loss. By contrast, the Catholic Augustinian and Thomistic principles I have outlined above permit a more plenary acknowledgement of the shape of the mystery. They do so without following, falling into the inverse error of Pelagianism, according to which the human person would be able to take the first initiatives to save herself or himself by advancing in the natural order of virtue and merit so as to accede to the world of grace. If salvation occurs by grace alone, but if human beings are also capable of freely refusing this grace, then the Catholic Church is right to claim a non-parallelism in her perennial doctrine of predestination and reprobation. All that is given to us in the order of grace to lead us towards salvation occurs by the unmerited first gift of God who first loved us from all eternity and who predestines the saints to eternal life. All that occurs to undermine the work of grace in angels and men stems originally from the angelic or human will that defects freely from the stimulus of grace, its infused capacities and inclinations. What you lose to your own perdition, you lose due to your own initiative, which God allows you to do out of his love and respect for your freedom. But here also is our greatest hope, that God's transcendent love is ever greater than our hearts, and in its transcendent mystery can sustain our freedom to love in continual being. He will give us the grace to repent, pray, and persevere, so long as we should place no obstacle in his way, and simultaneously, God offers the possibility of salvation to all. Consequently, we can preach the gospel with confidence in the abiding universal assistance of the Holy Spirit who wills that all human beings should receive the grace of Christ. Following the precepts of the Lord, then, the church can aspire to preach the gospel to all creation and pray with confidence. May you bring to completion the good work that you have begun in us, O Lord. This is the hopeful realism and perennial consolation of a Catholic doctrine of predestination. Thank you.